Well, good morning, church. Um, that's a kind of intense introduction, isn't it? Uh, um, and, and the ways, the kind ways that Pete introduced me, uh, I heard that introduction, I was like, wow, that guy sounds amazing. I'd, I'd like to meet him. That's, uh, that's incredible. Um, truth is, um, I'm a sinner, like all of God's children, um, saved by God's incredible grace. And it's, a, it's an honour and a privilege to be with you. I'm um, Beknownst to some of you, I've actually had a relationship with Antioch for a number of years now. I've uh, spoken at the Justice Conference in Asia and Australia and here in the US. So that's where I first met Pete and and Kip and uh, Ken. Um, But I have other friends uh, that are here today as well. These wonderful peacemakers who I have so much respect for, Jack and Jer, I love you guys. I'm so thankful for your witness, Um, not just here in this city, but nationally and internationally. It's an honour. I've got new friends that are... We, we marched together and had a great time yesterday who were here. And my friend, Ken, who I sat next to on the plane, Ken, where are you? And I've forgotten your wife's name already, Sue. It's lovely to have you. So we literally sat next to each other on the plane and Ken asked me what I was doing here and I said preaching and, and they found your church and have uh, joined us this morning. So welcome. I, I hope this is a blessed experience for you today. Given this season of transition, I want to start uh, by saying this. Um, I love Pete, and you're in safe hands. Here's one of the things that I love about Pete, that um, your culture doesn't always hold up uh, as star attributes. He's a man of prayer. That is a beautiful and wonderful thing. If, if you spent any time with Pete, you know that um, he is this kind, kind of presence. When he steps into a room, the room kind of feels better. With him in the room, people get on better. And he's a person of real humility. And I'm excited for your church and this next season under his leadership and uh, his heart. And I want to share just a word of encouragement today with a short amount of time that we've got together to bring us back to the things where our heart beats from because uh, it's not Ken or even Pete that we're baptised into. It's not Apollo or Paul or Peter, but Christ. And bring us back to, and as a way of bringing us back to, the Great Commission and what it is that you as a people are on about. And you're like, Jared, this is your first time here. You're a guest. How do you know what we're on about? And it's like, well, you're a gospel people, and this is what we're all called to be on about. So with your permission, I would like to explore the Great Commission actually land that in ways that um, bring out all the colours and the meaning that was there for the early church and do it as a way of uh, encouragement that calls us to the table and calls us to the people that we, by grace, can be. Does that sound all right? Way to spend our time? Cool. Well, um, let me start with prayer and then we'll read our text. Have thy will, Holy Spirit, do thy will. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, do thy will. Lord, you are holy, you are worthy of our praise. Whatever we have brought into this space this morning, that which would distract from you, would we leave that behind? That which would call our hearts to be attentive to you in this moment, would you leave there? We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us anew your Son, that our lives might glorify you, Father, and we might be caught up again in the brilliant beautiful excitement of what it is to be a people baptised into your love, into your Son, and called by your Spirit to follow you, Jesus. So, Lord, 
May the words of my lips and the meditation of our heart be pleasing in your sight, for truly you are our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, do thy will. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority... And my experience in teaching on the Great Commission is people often leave out the authority bit. The authority for us as Christians isn't in Holy Scripture, as holy as Scripture is, isn't in a pastor, whether they be Ken or Pete, it's actually in our Lord Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to me. Me being Jesus, it's a Sunday, you're in church, Jesus is probably the answer. (laughs) Verse 19, therefore go, or in the Greek it can also read as you go, which is interesting, uh, whether it's go in the positive sense or a passive as you go about your life. Either way, go and make what? Disciples. Not converts, not believers, not fans, not small group attendees, not ushers, not people who merely serve in the kids' ministry. All those things are fine things, good things, but disciples. Well, what's a disciple? Thankfully, our Lord will go on and explain it. It says, disciples of what? All nations, even America. Isn't that amazing? God's grace is just so vast and wondrous, even America. Go and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them. Baptizing them. Despite some of our talk as pastors sometimes, baptism isn't merely an outward sign of an inward thing. It's certainly not less than that, but it's a lot more than that. We've got to allow baptism to mean what it means scripturally. There is a mystery, there is something that we are submerged into that names us differently. Martin Luther in the 16th century, as he was translating the Bible into the vernacular of the people so people could read the Bible in their own language, he would sometimes feel tempted by the devil to give up. And his response to the devil, sometimes throwing his inkquill across the room, was to yell at the devil, I am of the baptised. I am of the baptised. I am of the baptised. For Luther, he knew that his identity wasn't in merely his assertion of, I feel it today. His wasn't in his confidence in what he believes. And maybe you're here this morning and you do feel sure of who you are in Christ. And faith, like you have a lot of faith this morning, Regardless of whether you're that or you've just dragged yourself in here going, I need to come in the same way that I try and come to church every Sunday, like an alcoholic needing Alcoholics Anonymous. Regardless, it's not how we feel or what we believe, but God's grace that in the waters of baptism promises that we are incorporated into Christ, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit that we are forgiven, that our sins are in remission, and we are part of a people living God's grace in witness to the love we see conquer at Calvary. Is anybody with me this morning? Awesome. We starting to preach? This is going to be fun. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the what? Name. Name is about identity. It's about who you are. 
It's about how people name you, what is deeply at the base, who you are, and the pattern that you see beautifully in the Rublev icons that are an altar call as you come forward for Holy Communion in just a moment after we finish. This picture from Genesis 18 of the three angels of the visitors, and if you haven't heard Pastor Peter's sermons on the Rublev about how Jesus sits at the middle of the table asking and inviting us into reflecting him as the Holy Spirit points to him, as the Father is present at the table and it's open for us to come into this life, this community that is God, this overflowing, canonic relationship of love, that in our baptism we are submerged in a life of love that is the Father giving of God's self in the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we're invited into. This is what we're called to. Not merely to respond, to believe a couple of things, to show up on a Sunday and maybe serve in some programs, but actually let our lives be submerged in the mystery of love that has conquered evil, injustice, sin and oppression at Calvary when viewed through the resurrection. Are we starting to preach? This is the Great Commission. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to... Obey. Now, I know enough about American culture that this word is about as popular here as it is in Australia. Obedience, repentance, commandments, our cultures don't like those words. But this is an optional extra. Apparently, life lived out of our baptism, apparently participating in the mystery that God's self-emptying love is actually about living a life of obedience. Now, people don't like to talk about repentance, I like to talk about obedience even less and commandments. No, it is more like a spiritual teacher who just has some nice suggestions. Here's some spiritual truths that you might find across different categories and different traditions. And, but the text says quite here, clearly here things that we often forget with the Great Commission, that it's not about being at the water cooler and inviting your mate to church, but hopefully you invite your mates to church. I mean, it's a great place to hang out with other sinners who need grace. That's why I'm here. But instead, the Great Commission is actually about a life submerged in the Trinitarian relationship that is God, where love flows into love that flows into love that flows into us in such ways that we learn to live God's love or be obedient. And not only obedience do we forget, but we forget presence and purpose. The next line reads, Everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always. This isn't set of principles or things to believe, but that God is present. The God whose love we're submerged into, the God who is this relationship of love who longs to love through us, that in obedience we don't have a set of principles, even fine principles like justice, are too vague, too esoteric, too easy to be defined by us instead of find their definitions in our baptism and in Jesus. But this is about God's active presence in us, till the end of the age, because we know history is going somewhere. What we see at Calvary, when viewed through the resurrection, is where all history is going. And you today get to be a taste test of God's future. You today get to be a little sign of where all of history is going. Or to put it another way, we by grace get to live God's love. That what God has done for us, God wants to do through us. Are we preaching yet? Cool. Well, I want to take this and actually make it practical. I wish Matthew, I don't know, maybe in three chapters, kind of summed up what he meant when he said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
You know, it would be really helpful if Matthew, maybe in three chapters, kind of summed up in 15 commandments where it was really clear with the imperatives in the Greek what the commandments were of what this life, a baptised life, a, love, a life lived out of that love, out of that Trinitarian identity actually looked like. Imagine if in three chapters, I don't know, from maybe chapter 5 through to the end of chapter 7, there was a, a summary that the early church, many scholars mentioned that it was written in such a way that the early church would memorise it and during the first three centuries, often towards the end of those first three centuries, in the lead up to Easter, you would memorise these teachings because you knew as you got into the water of baptism as a once-off event that named a daily way of life that would shape the pattern of the rest of your life, this is who you're called to be. That grace is not just what pardons us, but it's what empowers us for lives of obedience, lived in God's presence, participating in God's redeeming, saving, transforming love. For those who know what I'm talking about, those texts are called the Sermon on the... Now we're starting to preach. See, obedience has real content. Obedience is named as real practices, not principles, not values. But the problem is that there are two ways of those... 15 commandments being heard in church history that are highly unhelpful. And I'll name those two ways. And we'll have one of those ways be named as the must-do camp of reading the Sermon on the Mount. And on the other side, we have the can't-do camp of reading the Sermon on the Mount. As we open up just one of our Lord's commandments, not suggestions, but commandments... I want to ask you to consider, have you, in your experience of church, whether this is your first Sunday or whether you've grown up in church, have you heard Jesus' teachings from this space of can't do or this space as must do? And what I want to suggest, sermon spoilers ahead, is that neither of these options are helpful in actually living out the Great Commission. See, over here, and over here we have the must-do. In the must-do camp, it works like this. And there are conservative expressions of this that look like um, the way that you do baptism or the way that you take communion or the way that you dress, you must do these things to really be a Christian. Has anybody encountered this kind of Christianity? This kind of Christianity often lends itself to a kind of legalism a works-based righteousness where it's about what I must do. And sometimes from a must-do kind of place, the focus is on my perfection, my goodness. Am I perfect enough? And so you either do it in such a way where you fail and you feel shame and guilt, or you do it in such a way where you actually think you are doing it and then you feel like self-righteous and you judge others. These people are horrible at a party. Have you encountered this kind of Christianity? So they're conservative, but they're also like much more liberal versions of this as well. And it doesn't express itself with things like how you dress, it expresses itself with things more like um, your coffee, fair trade. <laughs> where, where are your shoes, mate? Oh, really? Oh, okay, yeah, you, you're not aware of the reality of, I have children. I wouldn't want my children working in a sweatshop. And, and you know they're right. You know they're right. But it's expressed in such a way where it doesn't witness to God's righteousness, but theirs. 
Have you encountered this? You live in Bend, of course you've encountered this. <laughs> right. And it's about you, and it's about how you appear, and it's about praying on street corners and your acts before others so that you get the praise instead of God. And it feels like not an invitation into something, but constantly works in this culture of calling out others as if we didn't have things that need to be called out in ourselves. This is a very popular option, and it's not much fun. On the other side, you've got the can't-do camp. And the can't-do camp are like, the only reason Jesus says to love our neighbour and even love our enemies is to show that you need grace. And grace, instead of being the empowerment to live out of your baptism in ways that you participate in the love of God, grace becomes a cheap grace where grace is the reason why I don't need to be obedient. I'm saved by grace, so love for enemies can mean bombing them because at the end of the day, none of us can really love our enemies. I mean, Jesus is God. Of course he's going to love his enemies, but I'm not God. And you're like, hmm, classic Orthodox Christianity, Jesus is fully human. All authority has been given to him. It's not an optional extra. But there are conservative examples like this that turn the gospel into a theory, sometimes shared in four squares, sometimes in five steps, and it turns it into a little theory that doesn't lead to baptism, doesn't lead to discipleship, doesn't lead to lives of obedience, doesn't lead to lives of living out of God's presence, and doesn't witness to God's future of all heaven and earth will be filled with the presence of the Lord. And instead just becomes like, see you in church on Sunday. But there are also liberal ways of the camp, can't do camp as well. And they look like, oh, Jesus was like an apocalyptic teacher. He thought that the world was ending, but Jesus was wrong. So at the end of the day, we know that being a Christian is uh, not about that extreme stuff of like loving your enemies and giving in secret and letting your yes be yes and all that kind of, certainly none of the economics of God's good creation and the lilies of the field. We all know that's ridiculous and our only options are either communism or capitalism. Don't take Jesus' economics seriously at all. Instead, being a Christian is about being a polite, middle-class citizen and going about your daily life in ways that are nice and hopefully don't do other people over. Have people encountered that kind of Christianity? So you've got the must-do and you've got the can't-do. And my problem with that is that this one over here focuses on God as a legalist. So over here, it's you as a legalist where you have to do the rules. Over here, God's a legalist. And there's only one rule, and it's sign up to the program, and it's these five steps or it's these four squares, and once you do this, you're in. No worries. Don't worry about following Jesus. Grace is just an excuse to ignore Jesus' teachings. I literally sometimes hear Christians say things like, I mean, not as blatantly like this, but it's almost like Jesus is the mechanism for salvation. Almost like, isn't it a pity that Jesus lived before the cross so he didn't know the gospel? <laughs> Jesus is the gospel. If you're here this morning and you think Jesus is just a way to go to heaven, I'm sorry, you need to be more biblical. Jesus is the way that heaven is coming here. And Jesus is not just a mechanism for salvation. He is our Messiah, and all authority has been given to him. So the problem with this kind of space is that it makes God look less like Jesus and more sometimes like a monster. Over here, the same thing. God is a cruel tyrant. Over here, sometimes God, it's almost like, the God that's talked about here hasn't spent enough time with Jesus, doesn't have a Jesus kind of understanding of justice. And you listen, God has to take it out on someone and took it out on Jesus so he doesn't have to take it out on you. 
And then preachers like me invite you forward in an altar call, and you're like, I want to come forward for Jesus, but I also want to run away from his father because he looks nothing like Jesus. And it leaves you in this odd position where you're like, I love Jesus, but the father that they're talking about sounds like that he needs to respond to the altar call and invite Jesus into his heart as well. (laughs) If your understanding of the gospel doesn't flow out of all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus... So we are baptised into the reality of Father, Son and Holy Spirit revealed to us in Christ Jesus. As Colossians will put it, that God's fullness was pleased to dwell in him. God's fullness. If you're here this morning and you take nothing else away, God looks like Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at the life of Jesus. And you'll realise that these options of the must do aren't a response that is the beauty of discipleship all the can't do, aren't a response that looks like the beauty of discipleship. And so the question becomes, well, that's great, Jared. Good diagnosis of the problem, but it's like going to the doctor and they tell you that this is what's wrong with you, and if we end it there, it's like, what do I do now? So the short amount of time that we've got left, I want to do what we can do now. I want to open up one of Jesus' teachings and look how liberating God's love actually is. So we can open it up in ways that we can live out of our baptism, participate in a life that reflects the love of the Holy Trinity, do so in obedience, realising that obedience is learning to live God's love in God's presence in witness to God's future. So I need a volunteer. Not all at once. Thank you, brother. Come forward. As he comes forward, um, let me introduce you to an Australian delicacy. This is Vegemite. Anybody had Vegemite before? Yeah, Vegemite is... uh, Brother, I'm Jared. Hey, Alex. Hey, Alex. Thanks for helping me out. Alex, do you like Vegemite? Yeah, I had it in Tauranga one time. Really? Nice. Um, You're not going to get to eat it. Sorry. Um, They say that a dominant Australian culture is a bit like uh, yogurt. Or, put it another way, that um, yogurt and a dominant Australian culture, the major difference is that after 200 years, yogurt has a culture. (laughs) Um, This is kind of the closest that Australian dominant culture gets to any culture at all. So, brother, I am going to ask for your left hand. Correct. (laughs) And if you would show everybody your left hand. So, let's actually open up. In the Great Commission, it says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. We're just going to go with one of the commands that Jesus says isn't an optional extra, but is central for what it is to be a people learning to live God's love. Now, it's Alex. Yep. Alex has Vegemite on his left hand. Has anybody been to India or Southeast Asia? Why wouldn't you eat with your left hand? (laughs) Alex has got a visual reminder for us, in case you're wondering. Uh, You're a polite uh, WCs, water closets, which is kind of strange as a crude Australian. Uh, I walk in there and like a a wash room, you refer to it as well, right? Like, I don't want to take a shower. I'm not interested in a bath. I just need to go to the loo. So we'll try and keep it polite because I know that you're polite North Americans. Um, But this hand you wouldn't eat with in Asia because... See you with your right hand. Because you eat with your right hand because it's used for ablutions. What we sometimes forget um, is that Jesus doesn't look like me. Uh, Jesus doesn't have an Irish Catholic background. 
Jesus is a Middle Eastern man, and according to Matthew's Gospel, he is people from Northern Africa and his family tree, and you don't end up looking white like me if that's your family tree. Jesus is from the Middle East. He's a Middle Eastern man, and the reality of his culture is that, much like Alex is showing us here, you wouldn't eat with this hand, and nor would you gesture with this hand. And this is important in terms of the commandment found in Matthew 38, and 39, it reads like this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist someone doing evil. Now, Alex has got his hand up. Alex, if you can't use your left hand, let's put our left hand behind our back, and Alex and I are an equal in that society. Now, the text clearly says what? If somebody strikes you on which cheek? Your right cheek. Now, that's interesting. Alex, this is my right cheek. If you can only use your right hand, and this is my right cheek, how are you going to hit me? Uh, like... Well, that would be a little unco, as we'd say. I'll translate from the Australian, the gift of interpretation here, uncoordinated. Yeah. Um, uh, so if you weren't to hit me like that, how else could you... That's, uh, Alex, let me help you out. Okay. <laughs> um, you would backhand me. Oh, yeah. Bang. Now, Alex and I this morning are hoping this is a hypothetical, but let's just imagine for a sec a situation that isn't often that hypothetical. Let's imagine for a second that you're a woman. For half of you, that'll be easier to imagine than others. It'll take a while, but you'll get there. <laughs> and you showed up here this morning, and your situation is that the, the man you married is perceived by most people to be very successful. He works at a very stressful job. In his stress, he's been drinking a lot more than he usually has. When he drinks, he speaks to you in ways that you're embarrassed in front of your friends. And in fact, recently, he was physical with you in a way that you were scared in your own home. And then you rock up in a place like this this morning, looking for a word of hope, and you hear a text read from Holy Scripture, where it says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist someone doing evil. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, do what? Turn to them the other also. Before Alex and I exegete the text and actually put it in its context, and we need to remember that a text without its context is a sure sign you're being conned. Again, a text without a context is a sure sign you're being conned. If you're a woman and you walk in here this morning and you hear Holy Scripture read and your situation is you're feeling scared in your own home and it says somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to left also. I want an honest answer. How do you feel? Awful. A sister with an honest answer, thank you. Others? Trapped. This is really important to actually name because we're talking about obedience here. These aren't optional extras. And if we're going to translate this from the must-do camp, we are going to leave people who need God's saving presence in their life and teach them to stay in situations where they're trapped. All they can't do, we're going to teach them to ignore Jesus' teachings because at the end of the day, we need something more realistic. And the question for us is, instead of the can't do or must do, how do we let God do through us something that looks like the saving, liberating love that we see at Calvary when we see it through the resurrection? So instead of angry or awful or trapped, let's put the text in context. So, back to Alex and I. In 
Jewish community, if we were to gesture with our left hands, so back to our left hands, so even to wave at us, a Jewish community not far from Jesus, contemporary at the time of Jesus, the Qumran community, if we were to wave with each other, we could be kicked out of community for up to 10 days because Alex will remind us why it's offensive. (laughs) So there's no way we can use these hands, so let's put these hands behind us. And the text clearly says, if somebody strikes you on your right cheek, so Alex, if you strike me on my right cheek, bam. Yeah, wasn't that dramatic. (laughs) So if we're fighting as equals, Alex and I, if we're on the same social rung of that pyramid of injustice, which often is society, Alex and I, if we were equals, I would hit him with my right hand, he would hit me with... and land a punch on which cheek? Left. But this clearly says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek... So let's pay attention to what actually happened. This isn't about two equals having a fist fight. This is about a systemic way. Like in my neighbourhood, we'd call this a pimp slap. And this is a way of saying, you're less than me. You remember the pyramid that I'm on top. And whether Alex was a man in that patriarchal, misogynistic society, Alex, to put me in my place, he would do what? Bam. Get back in your place. You remember that you're less than me. You remember where you fit in the pyramid. If Alex was a a Roman centurion and I'm just some Palestinian Jew working the the land, he could do what to me? Get back in your place. You remember that you're less... In that society which didn't value children and the radical things in which Jesus says about children, liberating things and the dignity that Jesus gives to children, adults would do what to children? Now pay attention... Because if we're to take our baptism seriously, if we're to live out of the mystery that is the Holy Trinity, the name that we're baptised into, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, if we're to obey Jesus, we must say no to the must do, we must say no to the can't do, and instead we must let God do through us. Because Jesus doesn't suggest, our Lord commands that if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, I'm to do what? I'm to turn the other cheek. Now, if I turn the other cheek, Alex has to hit me as a what? Well, he wouldn't hit me with an open hand because you hit this cheek with a... And suddenly, Alex is hitting me as a what? Equal. Equal. So this isn't about some legalistic Mm. must-do. This isn't some, oh, Jesus teaches these high ideals, but we can't really... Jesus commands that if somebody tries to humiliate you demoralise you, say that you're less than a child of God in this repeated way in society that says, you get back in your place. Forget your talk of a new kingdom coming. The only kingdom that works, it means that I'm above you. You know what kind of the way the world God works. It must be God-ordained. And when they say to you, get back in your place, we must turn the cheek of dignity. So if he hits me, he says to everybody looking on what? I am his... So who wins? If he doesn't hit me, who has the power in this situation? Can you see what's going on here? You know what's fascinating about the text that we've just read? We put it in context. Ever since in English, when it's been translated by the king's men, for the King James Version of the Bible, it is read, um, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist evil. 
Do you know in the Greek it can also read, do not violently resist evil. The Greek word that is used there in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, out of the 77 times it talks about violent conflict, this word that is used in this passage is used 44 times to talk about violent confrontation. So what I'm saying is, this text can also read, do not violently resist evil. What's the difference between do not resist and do not violently resist? Yeah, being passive, resistance, it's a way of standing up, but standing up for yourself in such a way that you don't become just like what you're fighting against. Round of applause for Alex. Alex, good luck with the Vegemite. What we are saying here is that what Jesus is actually commanding us to is not the must-do of being passive, not the can't-do of ignoring Jesus' teachings, but instead something that actually looks much more like the cross. The cross is confrontation as much as it is transformation. The cross calls us to the kind of obedience that looks like martyrdom, the kind of obedience that looks like that we will love in such ways that we expose the powers and principalities for what they really are by showing the world who God truly is. On the cross, Christ is the clearest picture we get of God and shows the clearest picture of our sinfulness simultaneously. The cross is the pattern of our baptism. That's what Romans 6 keeps going on about. That's what we're saved into. We die to our old self that we might rise with Christ. What we're talking about is what the early church lived consistently, that discipleship isn't about a set of passive must-dos, and nor is it a set of can't-dos so we throw ourselves on God's grace. It's that God's grace saves us to participate in the mystery that is the Holy Trinity, that through obedience, because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we know that God is present and is using our lives, our broken, flawed lives, to point to God's future. Are we starting to hear something of a kingdom revolution in these teachings? Can we see that every single commandment of Christ is actually pointing us to the cross in ways that witness to the resurrection? One more volunteer before we're done, and my mate Evan is going to help me out. Evan, are you there? Now, as Evan comes up, some of you know uh, Pastor Evan. If, if you were to put money on Evan and I in a fight, <laughs> who would you put money on? As I often joke, you shouldn't be gambling. Evan, what I'm going to ask you to do is to uh, hold your hands up like this, and I'm going to ask you to push, not once, but to actually apply pressure until I say stop. Now, I'm a fragile little Australian, so <laughs> make sure you stop when I say stop. But what I want to dramatise here is what we're actually talking about. You can put your hands down for a sec so I don't embarrass you. What, what we're actually talking about, I chose Evan because he's got a high shame threshold, so that, that's why <laughs> he's helping us out here. We're actually talking about the way that God saves and being able to enter in that we have no message other than Christ and him crucified and that that's practical. That these commandments aren't about a must-do that leaves us in passivity or a can't-do that means that we have to respond in ways that don't look like Jesus, but that God wants to do through us what God has done for us at the cross and in resurrection. So when faced with injustice... Most people respond in one of two ways, which we're going to dramatise through pushing. So if you put your hands up, Evan, and I'm going to ask you to push until you say stop. Some people think this is discipleship, stop. That we simply let ourselves be pushed around. 
that our lives are lived, being pushed around, and we just allow injustice to continue, and that this is somehow faithful to Jesus. It's not faithful to Jesus. It looks nothing like Jesus. It looks nothing like the nonviolence of Jesus in the temple, or if you want to put it this way, it looks nothing like the violence of Jesus in the temple. I'll allow you to be violent as a Christian if your violence looks like making a whip and that's your only weapon and you can't harm anyone. Welcome to how Jesus does war. So, like, there, there's your rules. And some people are like, okay, the only way I can fight is that I allow people to push me around. Or in response, people have enough and they try and push back. But here's the thing. Okay, that's humiliating. Let's stop. Um, what if you're not bigger? What if you're a small persecuted people under the biggest military occupation in the world at the time, just like Jesus was? How do you fight back in ways that doesn't leave you like the zealots, mirroring the same violence? Because here's the thing, when I push back, I become just like who? What we're fighting against. When scripture says, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with what we're invited into is not some secondary teaching. We're talking about the mystery of the cross seen through the resurrection, how God saves. And the thing is, when we fight back like this, we become what we hate. We actually give over our power to the systems that are run by Satan. And what we're being invited into is some way that isn't the passivity of push, merely being pushed around or pushing back. And for those that are interested, this is what terrorism is. Terrorism is cheap shots where the smaller guy uses ugly, disgusting weapons but still mirrors the violence of what they're fighting against. So Evan, when you're ready, if you'd push, what we're invited in instead, instead of being pushed around and pushing back, is something completely different. Again. 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 Now, out of interest, who's stronger? Who's your money on? <laughs> Round of applause for Evan. What the Great Commission invites us into is learning to be obedient to Jesus, where we realize that obedience in itself, it is a grace. It is learning to live God's love. That when we let our yes be yes, we not only witness to truth, we participate in truth. That when we give in secret, we're like a God who blesses in secret. That when we learn to trust, like the lilies of the field, we participate in the goodness of creation, which has enough for everybody's need, but not everybody's greed. So Jesus' commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, when we remove the log from our own eye, so we can help our sister and brother with a speck in theirs, it is participating in the grace of God where we live out our baptism, turning the cheek of dignity in ways that says, I am a child of God, is good news for that sister who comes along this morning needing a word of grace that helps her husband be who he's called to be without diminishing who she's called to be. Can you start to see the mystery that we're invited into in the Great Commission, that Jesus has all authority, that we're called into lives of baptism and obedience, that we might participate in that mystery of God's ongoing presence in witness to God's future. We're nearly done, but with your permission, I'd like to share one story. Australians, uh, we don't often tell personal stories like uh, Americans are very generous with their personal story, but I'm going to give it a go. All things to all people that I might win some, right? 
So this story is of incredible importance to me because of, it's like a secondary conversion for me. It's when I realized that the love that God had for me, God wanted to live through me. I was 18 years old and I was reading Martin Luther King's The Strength to Love, but before that I was reading Why We Can't Wait, which is the first book by Dr. King that I'd ever read, where he was talking about this mystery. He was talking about how nonviolence is a force, it's like a sword, and those that wield it, it ennobles, it gives you back your dignity. America has the most phenomenal tradition of what I've been talking about. We in Australia look to the traditions of your nation in terms of this kind of Calvary-like power that we've seen over and over again in this nation with heroes like Dr. King. He also talks about that those that the sword hits, it heals, and those that wield the sword, it ennobles. And I've just gotten off the train and I'm on my first year of university and uh, I'm at Warwick train station and I'm about to walk over the overpass and the overpass goes over the freeway, both lanes, uh, each way it's busy, and I'm in Jerry kind of ADD world, and I'm thinking about all this stuff that Dr. King is talking about in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. And this guy, about a foot taller than me, uh, taller than Evan, um, is walking the opposite direction, and I'm not paying any attention. And he goes, blah, blah, blah. didn't hear what he was saying until he said, money. And I look up, and this big guy is standing over me, and he's like, give me a and use words that you can't use in front of your mum, and uh, ask for my money. My initial response were other words you couldn't use in front of your mum. And once I moved past that shock response, that very normal human response of fight or flight. Flight or fight. But here's the thing, I can't outrun him. I've got my backpack with all my art equipment, my philosophy books from university, all that stuff, I was studying fine arts. I can't outrun him. And I certainly can't take him on, he's like a foot taller than me, so maybe I get a cheap shot and he goes down, best case scenario, but more than likely, like, I take a cheap shot, he's unaffected, like the Terminator turns back at me and I end up a puddle of what used to be Jared, that people <laughs> step in and are like, what's that? Oh, Jared tried to stand up to that big guy. And the next thing that went through my head are these things that the early church knew was what they were called to in their baptism. The next thing that went through my head is this stuff about, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Do not resist evil with evil. Instead, overcome it with good. Stuff like, and you know, it's not like I ask for thinking music as I'm being mugged. It's what flashes through your head. Stuff like, you've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your neighbour. Love your enemy, bless those that curse you, do good to those who persecute you. And it was enough for me to be present in the moment and actually I got out my wallet and here's the first miracle. As an art student, I actually had $10 in it, which was amazing. <laughs> I put my wallet away and I went to give it to him, but I also did this. My name is Jared. And he's like, James. And I thought he had my name wrong. And I'm like, no, Jared. And he's like, no, I'm James. And as fast as the car's underneath, he starts telling me his story. I'm really sorry to be doing this to you. Hey, I'm in a really bad way. I was on now Trexone. I was getting off the stuff. I was on heroin. I was getting off heroin. I'm back on the streets and like, mum kicked me out because of my heroin addiction. But I was on now Trexone and I was getting off the stuff. He's telling his life story at 100 miles an hour. And I'm shaking his hand. And his arm is so badly hit up. Like an icon that we're about to come and stand before as we take communion. He offered me an icon of his pain and... 
you know, I've lived over a decade of my life in a Christian community where we welcome people who were homeless before I lived with refugees. So I've seen lots of people with serious drug addictions and still to this day I've not seen an arm so badly hit up. His veins completely collapsed. It looks like a pincushion. I'm shaking his hand and he's telling his story and all I can think of is, this guy stinks. He stinks of stale urine. I hadn't started to spend my life with people who were street present at that stage and I didn't know that if you didn't shower for long enough, you just start to start smell like stale urine. And he's telling me his story, he's going through all this kind of stuff and this woman runs through um, uh, with a bag. But before she runs through with a bag, one of the things that dropped into my heart, which a bit like when I put my hand out, it changed the dynamic, it did something else that wasn't expected. I said to him, James, why don't you come back to my place? Not, why don't you come back, it wasn't that kind of offer. <laughs> Slip into something less stinky. No, no. Um, I was like, why don't you come back to my place? We can get you a feed. That's Australian for we can give you a meal. Um, uh, work out a place for you to stay. You can take a shower, get you some spare clothes. And a bit like when I put my hand out, it was one of those moments where something else was present, where I was actually starting to live out of my baptism and not how I've been named by the world. Those strange moments where, despite ourselves, we start to participate in the life of the Holy Trinity that is love. And he's totally floored by this, and he starts about six words. He's like, oh, um, uh, uh. and as we're speaking, I mentioned the girl with a bag. She runs through, and she's got a bag under her arm. I found out later she'd stolen the bag, and she's like, go, go, we've got to go. And he's like, I've got to go, hey. And I said, James, before you go, and I took off my backpack, and I pulled out a gun. No, that's the American version. I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, like, I... I, I <laughs> I pulled out a Bible and I said, James, my, my name and number is in the front of this if you change your mind about a place to stay. And the first time in that situation since, since the start of that situation, it got ugly again. He moves right in my face and he starts yelling and he's like, a Bible, what do I want a Bible for? I'm going to hell. That's not the most brilliant theological response I've ever said, but I said to him, James, we're all going through hell. That's why Jesus came. What happened next was the first time in that situation where I was completely thrown. This big guy with his fists raised standing over me just starts crying like a little kid cries. I'm not talking one tear, that was sweet, kind of um, thanks for your evangelism moment, Jared. I'm talking like he looks at the ground and he's just sobbing. And it actually scared me and I didn't know what to do. And he turns around and he starts running away from me. And I'm still standing there with the Bible. And then he turns around again and starts running for me. And being the incredible man of faith that I am, I start moving backwards because I thought he was... <laughs> and he runs up to me and he grabs the Bible and he turns around and he stops and he waves it at me and he like pulls the snot off his face, it turns around and he keeps running. And I'm just standing there going, what just happened? I pick up my bag and I was already walking in that direction. There's a beaten up old car at the end of the bridge and um, it's got loud, bad music playing. There's already about six people running, uh, like, in the car. He's running up to the car. The woman that um, had stole the bag, she yells out, I got a bag. That's where I found out that she'd stolen it. <laughs> James runs up and I kid you not, he says, I got, I got, I got ten bucks in a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I walked past my bus stop and I walked an hour and a half home where I cried most of the way. And I cried because for the first time I realised that the love that had saved me, God wants to live through me. That these teachings aren't about must do or can't do, but that God does through us. And my encouragement to you this morning, Antioch Church, is in this season that you realise your identity is in your baptism, not who's called to serve you as senior pastor. That you realise that all authority has been given to Jesus. And Jesus commands these things not in a must do or can't do, but God will do through you if we surrender our lives as broken people who realise that when our lives are surrendered, that brokenness can become the very place that God's grace flows out of. Antioch, my prayer for you this morning is that you'll experience something of this incredible love that means that you walk past your bus stop, you cry most of the way home and go, I want to give my life to Jesus all over again. We do that in the altar call that is called communion. Jesus invites us to the table where the only requirement is knowing that you're not better than anybody else and all it takes is a confession that I'm coming because I need God's presence. So this morning I invite you to respond to the gospel, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, as you come forward to receive communion. May I pray for you as a church as we move towards communion? Lord Jesus, I ask that anything that is not worthy of your gospel will disappear from what has been said today. And you'd leave us just with those things that, that point to you, Father. Holy Spirit, would you have your way in us right now that we would move past the can't do and the must do into that you want to do through us because of your incredible grace. Would you overwhelm us in this moment right now with the love that you long to live through us that has saved us? Lord, we thank you for the invitation to the table to remember our baptism and that because of your cross and resurrection, you are healing our world and use broken, problematic sinners like us to witness to that if we merely open to it. And Lord, I want to say today that I want to open to that again. I want to lay down my life again. I want to be a person who lives the Great Commission out of your authority, out of my baptism, out of being named by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in obedience to your love, in your presence that witnesses to your future. Holy Spirit, take our lives, we pray, as we respond to your grace at the table. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said... Amen. I want to invite you to the table with words that we use at Cornerstone Church. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is prepared for all those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith 
And you who can only scrape together enough to come forward and receive. You who have been here often and you who come for the first time. You who have tried to follow Jesus. You who have failed in following Jesus. And you who have decided to follow Jesus just now. Come because it is the Lord that invites you. It's God's will that those who desire Christ and hunger and thirst for his healing justice will encounter him through the power of the Holy Spirit here. So church... We invite you, respond to God's grace and come.